think defense lawyers are great. Welcome to the Georgia Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers podcast with your host, Georgia criminal defense lawyer, Scott Key. We interview lots of federal judges, and almost everyone that prison professors has interviewed has said, I care far less about the lawyer's arguments at sentencing and far more about what the defendant says at sentencing. Welcome to the podcast of the Georgia Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. We thank you for tuning back in. If you have not listened to any of our previous podcasts, we would invite you to listen to the first two. But in today's podcast, I interview Sean Hopwood, a professor of law at Georgetown University. Sean has the distinction of successfully representing two clients in a cert petition to the United States Supreme Court, which is a remarkable career type of a distinction in and of itself. But it is more remarkable for the fact that Sean was himself an inmate in a federal penitentiary when he drafted those cert petitions. Sean has a remarkable story of going from federal inmate to law student to attorney to now professor of law at Georgetown University. Sean took the time to come and speak to our group at the winter seminar And he was gracious enough to sit down and record a very brief podcast with me last week. Uh, Sean did that um, in between speaking to our group and and an important call that he had to make with the White House that very day. Sean's remarkable story is chronicled in his book, Lawman, which is available at Amazon and other places where books are sold. Um, Sean was recently... Um, interviewed for a 60 Minutes piece back in the fall. We'll uh, put links in the show notes to all of those things, and we would invite you to uh, check out Sean's story. Um, I spent the 30 minutes or so that I had with Sean not asking all of those questions uh, about his story, which you can easily find, but what I most wanted uh, from Sean when I interviewed him was to understand how we as lawyers can better relate to clients so that we can understand what the common frustrations are with us by incarcerated clients of ours and how we can better communicate and cut through some of those frustrations. And I think you'll find this interview to be as helpful as I did. Sean is an inspiration to talk to, uh, listen to, and read about. So I hope that you will enjoy this podcast, and after you've listened to it, you'll check out the rest of his story. And without further delay, I give you Sean Hopwood. Well, Sean, thanks for uh, coming down and speaking to um, our seminar and for taking a few minutes. I know you have a lot of things going on right now, and uh, spending 30 minutes doing a podcast is probably the last thing you have time for, so I really appreciate it. Oh, I'm always happy to meet and speak with criminal defense lawyers, or as I call it, my people. So for the, for the two people out there that don't know who you are, tell, tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and your background. So I am an associate professor of law 
at Georgetown University Law Center. But before I became a law professor and a lawyer, I had a different career. I robbed a bunch of banks in my early 20s and spent almost 11 years in federal prison. And so, and, and while you were, so for those of us who sometimes get a little frustrated when we get correspondence from the jail from our clients um, and, and who um, speak dismissively of jailhouse lawyers, uh, talk a little bit about your career as a jailhouse lawyer. Yeah, so in, in 2000, I got a job in the prison law library, and for the first couple months, I had no idea that I wanted to work anything with the law. Those books were big, they were thick, they were intimidating, and it felt like they were written in another language. But then, June of 2000, the Supreme Court decides Apprende v. New Jersey, and I, just like every other federal prisoner in the country, thought that this could lead to a sentence reduction. So even though I didn't have an undergrad degree, had not been to law school, I decided to start studying the law. While I was never able to get any relief for myself, I did manage to get the Supreme Court to grant two petitions for certiorari that I prepared for other prisoners. I won in the Sixth Circuit, and I won habeas and post-conviction cases in federal district courts kind of all over the country. And and then from there, uh, after you were released, and I think you served your full term. Yes. After you were released, you ended up going to work for one of my favorite, and one of my favorite places, a place that has helped me uh, through many uh, an agonizing uh, moment trying to figure out what in the hell to do. Uh, you worked for Cockle. I did. I worked for Cockle Legal Briefs. And, you know, when I got out, it was 2008, 2009. It was the height of the recession. No one was finding work, let alone the guy that just did 11 years in federal prison. But the Cockles is a small company in downtown Omaha, Nebraska, that helps lawyers all over the country file briefs to the Supreme Court. And they gave me my big break. They, mm-hmm. they gave me a job. And that set me on a path towards eventually going to law school. And so you go to law school. I think you marry. I don't know if I, I, don't know if I can characterize you as your high school sweetheart, but, but uh, someone you'd known for a while. Yes, my wife, who I knew in high school but not well. We found out that we had a mutual crush on each other, but no one acted on it. And my wife, Annie, started writing me in 2000 while I was still in custody. And over the course of eight years of letters and phone calls and occasional prison visits, we just became really close friends. And when I got out of prison, I kind of knew she was it for me. So let and, and if if and this is a fascinating story. I've read your I've read your book. So uh, if people are interested in your book or to know more about your your life in your extraordinary legal career, where, where could they turn to uh, read about you or w- what's your book called and where can they find it? Well, I think the first place I'd send them is to the sixty minutes piece that came out this fall because it's a fourteen minute piece that's kind of a synopsis of the story. Um, But I have a memoir called Lawman, Memoir of a Jailhouse Lawyer. And the easiest place to get it is at my new venture called prisonprofessors.com. And you can buy the book online there, uh, along with a bunch of other books by my uh, co-partner, Michael Santos, who also has had pretty enormous success. He did 26 straight years in federal prison for a nonviolent drug offense got a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, wrote seven books, and became a blogger for Huffington Post and Forbes, all while serving time in 18 different federal institutions. 
So uh, uh, where I want to sort of steer this, and, and this, is a, this is a podcast mainly that's listened to by criminal defense attorneys uh, right now in Georgia, and we, we hope it will uh, become more nationally. Um, so I work for an, I work and am a, am an associate, I'm an adjunct professor um, working with a habeas clinic at a law school. I'm also in private practice doing um, post-conviction and direct appeals and a little bit of trial work and some federal trial work. Two things I want to talk to you about today, and, and one uh, one would be with with when we as clients, because you've you've been on but you've been on yep. both sides of the table. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of frustration that that attorneys feel um, toward their clients, uh, particularly incarcerated clients who write them. Who who I, I don't think every jailhouse lawyer is Mr. Hopwood. Um, but, you know, I dealt with a situation today where we have a motion for new trial coming up in a case with a client, and I think there was some panic, and um, I got a fairly lengthy communication from my client with some, some, some issues that he wants me to raise in the brief that I don't think are probably the best. You've been on both sides, and so you know that clients often are way more frustrated with us yes. than we are with them. Do you have, having been on both sides, what's some advice that you have for lawyers Clear and repetitive communication with the client. Okay. I find that when I invest in my clients by talking to them frequently, that they trust me more when it comes down to decisions as to which issues to raise. Uh, And, you know, we talk about my expertise, and they usually will trust. But I also find that by doing that, even when you lose a case... They feel like they had someone that went to fight for them and, and went to push for them. And I find people are take losing their criminal appeal or post-conviction matter much better if they feel like the lawyer has invested in them with communication and made them a part of the process. It just goes better for everyone. Uh, but I also understand that it's hard when you're a lawyer and you know. I mean, part of our job is to protect clients from themselves. Mm-hmm. And that happens a lot. And I've had to tell people, listen, you do not want to put in a bunch of issues that have no chance in the brief. Because as a former clerk, when you read those, it's hard to think that there are going to be any good issues when you read five of them in a row that have no chance of success. Uh-huh. And uh, so if um, sometimes the, the – I always get the sense that when my, sometimes my client will write me and I recognize, a certain, I recognize certain phrases that are being used. I, I, I sense that sometimes my client is getting advice from somebody on the inside. And that's not, not necessarily bad. Um, and I think are – are you in the clinical setting at Georgetown? I was. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm not now, um, but I still work with the appellate clinic on cases and moods and things like that. So, so clear communication and frequent communication. Yes. Um, I often find that the, the person that they're talking to, maybe the 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 motives can be on the ulterior side. Yes. Um, and then and then some and very often their advice is much more hopeful than yes. what I'm saying. What, what's your best advice for? You know, if if you find yourself maybe triangulated with a with a, a jailhouse lawyer on the inside, yeah, maybe a letter 
I mean, some sort of communication with the jailhouse lawyer and say, I disagree with you here. I think Oh, so, you, so really reach out to the... Yeah, to, to the and I think you could say, like, you are... Uh, part of my job is to manage expectations. And anytime you're appealing in a criminal case, the odds are stacked against you. Mm-hmm. And it's important for me to let my client know that and tell the jailhouse lawyer, and your communication is clouding that message. I never even thought of ta- talking to the third party. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, have you done I, that? I have done that. And, okay. And, you know, what I'd say is there are really bad jailhouse lawyers who try to take people's money. There are also really bad lawyers who try to take people's money mm-hmm. and that view clients as a revenue stream. There are also good jailhouse lawyers. There are also really good lawyers. Uh-huh. And so, you know, I mean, you just got to try and do your best. I find, though, if you have continuous communication with clients, they're going to trust you. It, what was the, when you were, when you were on the inside, what, what was the number one uh, complaint or, you know, when people were upset about their lawyers or upset with their lawyer, what, what was the complaint? What were they upset about? That the lawyers just weren't diligent. Uh-huh. The lawyers didn't pursue leads that they should have pursued. They didn't file, you know, a motion to suppress when there were potential Fourth Amendment issues. You know, uh, lawyers who at sentencing do uh, just a really bad job of sentencing mitigation and didn't tell the story of the defendant or Mm -hmm. why they were in that particular place where they were committing a crime and why they won't do it again. Uh, I feel like lawyers, a lot of lawyers are not great at storytelling, which is bizarre because the federal system now, all the judges have all this enormous discretion because the guidelines are advisory. And if you want to tell a good story, that's the place to do it. How do we get better at storytelling? I think you have to be intentional about it. First, Uh you have to have enough communication with your client to actually know their story. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of what we do at Prison Professors is Michael interviews defendants and their families and helps them write a narrative that the lawyer can then use. Uh, So first, you got to know your client and your client's story, but then you got to be able to explain to the judge you know, why this person can be redeemed. We interview lots of federal judges, and almost everyone that prison professors has interviewed has said, I care far less about the lawyer's arguments at sentencing and far more about what the defendant says at sentencing. Do you find that, do you find that judges, the, the experience I have partic- here in Georgia and the uh, northern and middle district of Georgia, I don't, do much, I don't do much work in the southern district, is even though the, the guidelines are advisory, I feel like they're treating the guidelines as if they're still yeah, mandatory. Yeah, there, there are places in the country that uh, you would never know that Booker versus United States ever happened. Uh-huh. Uh, and there are other places in the country. I work for, in law school for the federal defenders in the Western District of Washington and Seattle. And there, the practice was much different. There, the government didn't even ask for a guideline sentence in most cases because all of the federal district court judges weren't going to impose guideline sentences. So it was an entirely different practice from what I see in the Midwest and some places in the South, where it's almost as if the guidelines are still mandatory. But I I suppose then, you know, if they're not going to do their job, we still have to do ours. Yes. And 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 what I hear you saying, or what I heard you saying a second ago, is that the clients, even if you lose, feel better if you were engaged with them yeah. and if, if their story is told and if they got their day in court. So one thing we don't do is we don't even really learn the story as well as That's we should. That's right. 
That's right. So suppose that we've done that. We've done the mitigation. We've we've interviewed and we've gotten the school records and we've gotten the medical records and you know we've 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 talked to the family and we, we really are we come in there and we, we have all the facts gathered. What if we're new to this whole to this whole storytelling thing? Any resources or any any place you could maybe refer people to learn to tell better stories? We at Prison Professors are going to be pre- making, creating, and preparing and giving away free sentencing mitigation and ideas on how to do a better job of storytelling. We plan on having that out in the next couple of months. And, and this is like in the sentencing memo? and In the sentencing memo, we also have some other things that we're doing to provide free resources. One of the things we're doing this year, we are going to have a review on our website of every federal prison in the country. The reviews will be written by people that are currently there. We'll explain the programs there, what the staff is like, so that people want to get a welding program and they don't know which prison to transfer to. Mm -hmm. Their family's going to be able to look on our website, and we're going to be like Yelp for prisons. Well, so that was was going to be my next question. So uh, particularly folks that do federal work, we we sometimes have to prepare white-collar clients for, you know, the reality of some time, even even if it's a... 18 to 24 month sentence or something like that it's it's significant and we often look at it as like well it's only 18 months <laughs> um, we, we're not doing it right yes. but, and, and, and I have a, I have a lot of reading your book um, a lot of what you talk about is navigating that world yes. and, and, and being able to navigate that world and stay out of situations but you know, you speak of like you know I think I think there's someone there's sort of someone that sort of mentors you when you first go in and um, says that you know that day will come where you're going to be tested. Yeah. And it looks like for you it came late. It's a little yep. bit later in your sentence. What can we do? Or if if I have a terrified white collar client or a terrified like drug offender who's never been in any kind of prison, you know, over you know the night they spent there before they made bond, what are some what are some resources or how what what can, or Another situation, I have a client right now who's being extorted and has has come to me for advice on what to do about that. Um, What do we we tell clients? I mean, again, I think we hope to have resources to help. This is the exact sort of things that we do. Mm -hmm. We do sentencing mitigation in all cases where we come in and help the lawyers with Mm -hmm. storytelling. Mm -hmm. And, you know, little things like objections to the PSR. A lot of lawyers don't understand that if there is a history of drug or alcohol abuse, that has to get put in the pre-sentence investigation report in order for the client to get in the residential drug Mm -hmm. and treatment program Mm -hmm. and get a year off their sentence. Right. So we're often encouraging lawyers to do those things. But as far as the prison, we, we come in and advise people on... Here's what you need to do the first day you walk in prison because the advice they're going to get, everyone gets this when you go into prison. Prisoners will say, do not worry about the outside world. Only focus on things in here. That is the worst advice you Mm -hmm. could ever give someone. Okay. Because our view is you should be focused on your release from the first day you enter prison Mm -hmm. and be on a program to better yourself so that when you come out, you're law-abiding, successful you know, have extraordinary success like Michael and myself and a whole bunch of uh-huh. other former prisoners have done. So it, it it's requires having someone that has been, done time. I wish I would have 
had a prison consultant before I had gone to mm-hmm. federal prison because I made so many wrong moves those first couple of it years. It seems like from the book you had the you had the fortune of, of sort of being taken under the wing by somebody that was, was actually a nice guy. I was, and not everybody gets that. Uh-huh. And, and what oftentimes you see are people take someone under their wings because... There's an ulterior motive. There's an ulterior motive and things go bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we prep clients both for that predicament. We also prep them for a lot of the white-collar defendants have businesses that still need to be running while they're incarcerated. Mm-hmm. And I have witnessed so many times when I was in prison, people that let someone manage their business that they shouldn't have, and they ended up running the business into the ground while uh-huh. that person was doing uh-huh. time. And so we, we've come up with strategies to help people, including hiring lawyers to act as, you know, basically as your surrogate in the business that you have and have somebody that is paid to keep an eye on things for you while you do your time. Well, now headed back, going back to your story and, and I don't, I don't, these are conclusions that maybe I just draw reading the book. Cause I don't know. I, I, I what I, I seem like I know more about your life than probably seems like everybody <laughs> you run into probably knows a lot about your life, but it seems to me that, I mean, you, you had the potential to be a, a, a fantastic lawyer all along you know, but before you went to prison, you had, you know, you, you were amazingly, you're amazingly intelligent. You, you, you had, you successfully, I mean, lawyers may go that, thus far I have not had a cert petition granted in the U.S. Supreme Court. So you, you obviously have. I know, as I tell people, it's all downhill from here. (laughs) Like what, what's more difficult than getting a cert petition granted as a pro se indigent federal prisoner? Like nothing I can do on the law will ever you and Clarence Gideon, right? <laughs> yes. But, but you know, my, I guess my question is: Do you do you think that you obviously can't know what trajectory your life would have taken had you not gone to federal prison? But it seems like the the real discipline in your life came when you when you ended up there. And I know that is a that is an unusual story. But what, what do you what do you think? Do you do you think the the prison system got it right with you? Or do oh you, no, no no no. There were two things and. I don't think I understood them at the time, but now having been out and seeing the social psychology literature out there, it all makes sense. Well, because you came from a good family. Yeah, I came from a good family, and, you know, I had no excuses for the things I did. What I tell you is we know a lot more about young men and their behavior now, and we know that they mature at a slower rate than women do, and that for many men, 25 is the year where they finally pull it together. Mm-hmm. That was the case for me. I just, everybody wants to know what, what the secret was. Uh-huh. I grew up in prison. Uh-huh. And I grew up and I had success with the law. And what I found was I really enjoyed using these skills to help other people. And because I was representing other people, I had to become responsible in the same way that a 25 year old that gets married and has kids mm-hmm. has to. And then they're a lot less likely to commit a crime because they have that responsibility. It was the same way with me. I grew up in the prison system. I had the success of getting the cert petition granted. And then I was on this trajectory of helping people Uh and and realizing that I had people's lives in my hands. And that made me become a lot more diligent and a lot more responsible. So so you think it came together for you in spite of the prison system? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh yes. There was no prison program at the prison I was at. That mm-hmm. contributed m- to my rehabilitation. I don't think I ever heard mm-hmm. anyone in the federal prison ever use the word rehabilitation 
in the 10 years I was there. Uh-huh. So, and you also had a, a, a support system on the outside. I mean, you had a family that cared about you, and you, you had a girlfriend. And um, do you, um, so what, what do you think prison, what do you think the Bureau of Prisons, I guess we could, this could be a two-hour podcast if I ask this question, but <laughs> what, what do you think the Bureau of Prisons could do better? Open up the prisons to bring more volunteers in, have more rehabilitation programs, have make it easier for people to come visit. We know that community is so important to rehabilitation. It is important to maintain community and family ties while you're in because when you get out, if you lose your job, those are the people you have to fall back on. Community is also important for another reason with reentry, which is when people get out and people like, this, for me, the Seth Waxmans of the world huh? become mentors to you, you don't want to commit a new crime because you don't want to let all of these people down that have given you a second chance. So providing more rehabilitation programs, you know, a lot of the men I served time with had never had a bank account. Some of them had never had a driver's license. The BOP is not preparing them for those small things and those small things that seem small to everyone else can be huge hiccups when you're trying to come out of prison after doing a long time and get your life back in order. Uh, technology is another thing. You know, I came out of prison in 2008. I had never been on the Internet, never mm. seen an iPad, an that all iPod. Came, that all came about while you were inside. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when I got out, like at Cockle Printing, they knew I had this reference letter from... Seth Waxman. Waxman, who's a former Solicitor General of the United States, and they said, send us a PDF. What's that? I didn't know what a PDF <laughs> uh-huh. was, and no uh-huh. one else did either. Uh-huh. And so, you know, that could have cost me that job. And if it cost me that job, I'm not sitting here talking to you today. Mm-hmm. So that's how important it is to provide job training and life skills to prisoners while they're in. Let them maintain community and family ties and then try and get them into community when they get out. What's what's hard about visitation now? I mean, how, what, what, well, what are some of the obstacles? Well, with federal prisons, you're, you may be 500, 800 miles away from the people mm-hmm. who want to visit you. And I don't, you know, you hear horror stories about people that fly from the East Coast to the West Coast to go visit a loved one in a federal prison. And, and for get, some reason, they get, or turned, away they get turned away all the time. It happens all the time. Because it's so arbitrary who they let in and who they don't. Yeah, I got turned away for wearing khaki pants one day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I they had don't. To go, I had to go find like, if you're not in a suit and you're a dude. No, yeah. yeah. What are you I, I can't wear? tell you how many people I know who have gone to federal prison to visit and then had to run to Walmart because the prison was very arbitrary. You know, uh-huh. they, they even called ahead and said, "What can I wear or not wear?" And then get there and find out that the rules, the goalposts, have been moved. Uh huh. And sometimes it just seems just arbitrary. Like it they're is. Having fun it's, with you. it's, you know, there were so many prison guards that had so much animosity towards me when my now wife used to come visit me mm-hmm. in prison. Mm-hmm. And I know what they were thinking. Like, I'm having a hard time getting a date, and this guy has this beautiful, intelligent woman coming to visit him, and they were pissed off about that uh-huh. constantly. Uh-huh. In fact, they kicked her out of the visiting room a few times because of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we, we, the BOP needs to do a better job of managing, you know, the people that work for them and, and creating more rules so that people that are lording over others with authority aren't just imposing arbitrariness on prisoners time and time again. 
So you mentioned something a second ago I want to go back to. You, you know, you said that we not, not everybody has like a Sep Waxman. You're, you're talking 430? Okay, we'll, we'll wrap it up. But what, what could, I'm assuming we could all be that Seth Waxman care, like person to our client even after we're done with the case. Oh, yes, yes, yes. You know, lawyers have a, a, a huge, I think, responsibility to when the case is over, as long as your client's still in prison, at least periodically check in. Mm-hmm. And provide some encouragement. I can't, you know, one letter to a client just encouraging them can no, have a huge impact. No legal issue. Hey, no I'm just legal thinking about issue. you. Just thinking about you. Hope you are trying to take advantage of whatever you can inside. And, you know, I can't wait for the day that you get out. Something as simple like that could make a big impact. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Professor Sean Hopwood, I really appreciate you speaking to me. I know. You have a ton of things going on right now. You're speaking to our group here in about eight minutes. So where can people find you that they, if they want to know more about you on they social, social can, media or anywhere? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Sean Hopwood. Um, they can go to prisonprofessors.com or find me at my faculty profile page on the Georgetown Law School's website. Well, thanks so much for taking the time and thanks for coming for down to Georgia. Me. Thanks for having me. It's uh, my first time to Atlanta. It's usually not snowing. Yeah, I wasn't expecting <laughs> snow, but that's okay. Well, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the GACDL podcast. To hear future episodes, please be sure to subscribe. Tell your friends about us. For more information about our host, Scott Key, you can visit his website, millerandkeylaw.com. For more information about the GACDL, please visit our website, gacdl.org. The sole purpose of this podcast is to entertain, educate, and inform. It is no substitute for professional advice from a criminal defense lawyer. Guests who speak on the podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions. The GACDL neither endorses or opposes any legal strategies discussed on this podcast. If you need legal representation, please retain licensed counsel. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you join us next time.